and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode on Challenges That Change Us. Before we dive deep into the episode, I was wondering if any of you have ever found yourself waking up in the middle of the night with that unsettled feeling in your belly. Maybe it's a decision on the horizon, and maybe it's the thought of that, the weight of that that's keeping you up. I know that has definitely been me this week, and I thought it might be helpful to share some of the strategies that I use to calm my mind and also my body when it is tensing up and future pacing like that. First off, take a deep breath. Inhale slowly and exhale and focus on the present moment. It is essential to calm our nervous system and prevent those worries from taking over. Remember, it is okay to acknowledge your concerns, but don't let them dictate your thoughts. It can be great to keep a notepad by the side of your bed, and when your mind starts racing about the thoughts of the decision, jot them down. Externalizing those concerns might give you a sense of relief. It's like giving your mind permission to set aside those worries just temporarily. And finally, here's the golden rule. Avoid making major decisions in the middle of the night. Sleepless hours can amplify emotions and cloud our judgment. Instead, give yourself the gift of a good night's sleep. Revisit that decision with a fresh perspective in the light of day. Unless, of course, you are that person that finds the stillness of the night the moment that you get the most clarity on a decision. And if that is you, then I would I would say do the opposite. Allow yourself the time to get the clarity, make the decision, and then drift back to sleep. This is actually very relevant to the conversation that we're about to have here today with Sophie Scott. Sophie is a highly sought-after international keynote speaker on topics such as preventing burnout, managing your mental well-being during times of change, the science of high-performance habits, and how to use neuroscience to stick to new habits and overcome unwanted ones. She is an award-winning journalist and a former national medical reporter for the ABC and a TEDx speaker. So Sophie now helps tens of thousands of people around the world using evidence-based science and her own personal journey. She has an extensive presence on social media You might have already heard of her. She has been invited to speak at the World Congress of Positive Psychology and has written two books, Live a Longer Life and Road Testing Happiness, and has won major awards for her journalism and medical reporting, including the prestigious Eureka Award. She is an adjunct associate professor at the Notre Dame University Medical School Lecturing in Science Communication. She's an ambassador for the POTS Foundation, Bowel Cancer Australia, Pain Australia, and is a patient reviewer for the British Medical Journal. And that barely scratches the surface on what Sophie has achieved and how she helps people all around the globe. 
Given everything I just said, you can imagine the challenge Sophie faced when she realized that she was experiencing burnout, when she realized there was something bigger going on. Sophie shares how she navigated that for herself, but also as a high profile professional, what she said to people around her, how it changed her life, and what she does differently now as a result. She openly talks about her takeaways from this experience and talks about some of the science that sits behind the strategies and tools that she found helpful. If you have ever felt overwhelmed, run down, burnt out, like your nervous system hasn't had a chance to resettle, then this is the episode for you today. If you know anyone out there that might need to hear this today, share this episode with them. Let me introduce you to Sophie Scott. Hi, Sophie. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Ali. I love to start every episode with asking you what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? It just helps us get to know you a little bit and perhaps, you know, some of the characteristics that others may see in you as well. I thought about this question. <laughs> it's a good question, actually. I thought maybe I should say a lion because I'm a Leo. And for anyone who's into zodiacs, and if you're a Leo, you always read your star signs because we tend to get the best stars. But then I thought that sounds a bit shallow. It's also not very evidence based, <laughs> your zodiac. So I think one I would say is the animal that I most identify with would be a cavoodle. <laughs> and that's because I'm a very recent dog owner. I only got my first dog five years ago. It's a cavoodle. Up until that point, I'd always been a cat person. But I think what I have realized with the cavoodle, my cavoodle Sammy, there's a few things about pets. I think it's the unconditional love that they give you. They're generally very calm and they, you know, calm your nervous system. And they're always very present. You know, they're not worrying about what they're going to have for dinner or what they're doing tomorrow, or even if they're going to go get taken for a walk later, all they really care about is what's happening at that moment. And they also rest a lot. <laughs> so I think I've learned a fair bit about life from my caboodle. So I would, I'd say I, I identify as a caboodle. <laughs> so the most important question of the podcast is coming up now, right? So how and why did you change from a cat to a dog lover? That's a big shift. Yeah, so having a dog is a more of a responsibility. Cats are pretty self-sufficient. So, and I've loved cats. I've always had cats ever since I was a little kid, always had kittens and always wanted cats around. And I still do love cats as well. I have got four kids, four boys, and I think that was probably enough responsibility for me having four kids to deal with. And knowing that, you know, kids, they might say they will look after pets, but in the end, you as the parent end up looking after the pet as well. So I already had four kids. I didn't really need another responsibility. But when the kids got older and, you know, a bit more self-sufficient, then my husband and I actually, he really wanted to get a dog. He'd never had one either. So it was something that we really did together, both of us, as a as a thing for both of us to get a dog for the first time. So it was a really nice thing that we did together. And now that we've got a bit more time, now the kids are a bit older. So that was a sort of a, a transition, but I, I still love cats too. I wonder how common it is. This is no, nothing to do with that podcast, but I wonder how common it is for two people to be together that have never had a dog because dogs are sort of the ones that most people have probably had a dog at some point in their life. That's really interesting, um, but not why we have you on here today. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. Most people, you know, have had a dog when they were younger or growing up and it's pretty unusual that both people in a relationship wouldn't have had dogs and both of us wanted one at exactly the same time so it was it was just fortuitous I think yeah 
And Sophie, it's interesting that you mentioned about the four kids because I think that's going to thread through our conversation today. We, we're going to have a bit of a conversation around particularly the physical signs of burnout. Where does this conversation begin? Because it can really start earlier than what we think. For you, when you think about the physical signs of burnout and, and some of the, I guess, the lessons and the experience and then also laid with all the science because you, you know, you're a researcher by heart, when did your sort of chapter begin in this space? So my story was really interesting, Ali, because I didn't really know that much about burnout. I'd sort of heard about it. I'd read a little bit about it, but it was only really when I was speaking to a professor that I know who rang me up asking me, this is quite a few years ago, pre-pandemic, he was writing a book on burnout and he wanted to know whether I knew anyone who'd been through an episode of burnout and was willing to talk about it. And so I said, oh, well, can you just take me through what the signs are? You know, what are the signs of burnout? And When he went through all the signs, which are very, very specific, you feel physically and emotionally exhausted, you feel very disengaged and disillusioned about what you're doing, you feel like you're not making a difference anymore and and you also have a lot of physical symptoms as well, as well as cognitive symptoms like cognitive dysfunction. When he went through that list, I was like, wow, I just tick every one of those boxes and I had never really heard it listed like that, like a laundry list. And I think that, that for me was like, wow, a bit of a you know, a wake up call as well. And so uh, the thing about burnout, it's a bit like, you know, the frog in the boiling water, it sort of creeps up on you. And it's, you know, particularly if you've been doing a job that you love doing, generally a high stress job, it can just happen before you really realize it. And then the the reason I'm passionate about talking about burnout is I don't want people to end up where I was and, and feel the physical symptoms, because then you have to, you know, really focus on recovering. And for me, you know, cognitively, I just thought, yep, I'll just keep working. I'll just keep powering ahead and working really long hours and having a really busy life and, you know, flying around the country, you know, having a ridiculous schedule. But the thing is your body tells you when it's had enough, when it wants to take a break. And even if, you know, mentally and cognitively you think, oh, no, I'm just going to keep going, but your body just says enough already. And I just want people to know about burnout so that they can go, oh, wait a minute, I feel a few of these symptoms. I don't want to end up feeling worse. I want to do something about it. And we know from research that a lot of younger people are already reporting that they're feeling burnt out, even in their 20s. You know, So this is not something that is necessarily just affecting people in their sort of 30s and 40s and 50s plus. You know, Younger people are saying they feel overwhelmed, they feel stressed, and that's really concerning for me because, you know, we want people to be in their 20s and 30s feeling like they've got so many years of productive life ahead of them and not feeling like they're burnt out and overwhelmed. Maybe tell us a little bit about what your life looked like when you said you were working and traveling and, you know, how old were your kids and what work were you doing? Because you've had lots of different jobs over the time. Give us a bit of a kind of description of your life at that point. The main career that I had was working as a broadcast journalist focusing on health and specializing in health and medicine. And so that meant I worked for all of our, the different platforms. So I worked in radio, television, online journalism, as well as working for the news channel, working in current affairs. So it was like a very intense output and workload, as well as covering you know research and doing patient safety investigations. So involved, with, I, I spent a lot of time interviewing patients and interviewing people who'd been had medical errors and things go wrong and, you know, a lot of trauma. And so you have to spend a lot of time getting to know someone because you're obviously wanting them to share their story with you. And so it's quite an emotionally intense, that was quite an emotionally intense thing to do. 
but very rewarding on the same token. Like it, even though it was a very full-on job, it was very rewarding as well. And so I did all that. And also at the same time, I was hosting a lot of events. I was you know, speaking on mental health. I'd, I wrote two books, one on healthy aging and one on positive psychology. And so I spent a lot of time talking about those books and those topics. All this was happening sort of when my kids were sort of in their teenage years. So from primary school and teenage years. And so, yeah, it was a busy time. Definitely really busy, you know, a, a great time, but pretty busy. And I, you know, in hindsight, I don't think I took enough time out for myself and didn't prioritize looking after myself. I was very focused on looking after the kids and very focused on working hard. But I think we often put our own needs to the bottom of the pile and we think, oh, well, I'll get to that once I've done everything for everybody else. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you never get to that point where you find the time to do the things that, you know, make you feel good and that sort of fill your own cup and replenish yourself. I think the thing that was the wake-up call for me was when I started to get the physical symptoms that something was going wrong. And for me, it was I'd worked all day. I flew up to Queensland to host this black tie dinner for healthcare workers. And just out of the blue, I was just when I stood up to the podium to start announcing the first awards, I was hit with this waves of dizziness. And I seriously thought I was going to fall over and, and end up in the laps of the audience. And I'd never felt anything like that before. You know, I'd, I knew what anxiety felt like, you know, with that sort of rush of adrenaline when you get up to speak in front of an audience. And it wasn't that. This was something very, very different and, and much more intense than anything I'd felt before. And so I sort of managed to get through the night and, and managed to not fall over and <laughs> not, not end up in the laps of the doctors and nurses. But to me, so when I went back to see my doctors and, and check everything out, that was a sign to me that my body and my autonomic nervous system was just saying, you know, enough already. And, and I think if you are in that sort of fight or flight and survival mode for so long, you actually get stuck in that state and the body and the way your nervous system is is meant to operate is it's meant to sort of go back into balance so that's the way our nervous system works you know like something happens we react or respond to it and then we go back down and feel you know relaxed again not being up into into this survival mode the whole time after a while your body just says you know enough already and that's what happened to me so I just want other people to not feel like that, basically. <laughs> so that's why I'm passionate about helping people. And it's so good to hear you use those words because the autonomic system is something that I only heard about in the last two years. And I was like, how have I never heard of this before? And so on this podcast in particular, we've brought someone in to talk specifically about the vagus nerve. We've brought someone in to talk about the autonomic system because it's like, for me, when I first heard about it and started reading about it, I was like, how do we not all know this? Like, why do we not all have access to this more readily and know what to do. But there was a couple of things you said there. One of them was around when you first stepped up on stage and you felt dizzy. And I guess I'd imagine that would have been pretty scary if you hadn't felt that before and it was a new, were you scared? Yeah, well, I was just really like, well, what is this? I mean, I, you know, like I said, I know what it's like when you have that rush of adrenaline being on stage. So I knew it wasn't that. And I, I know that what it's like having the adrenaline rush of like live television. Like I've been a newsreader. I, I was yeah. I was a newsreader for, for quite a few years. So I know what that feels like. And you feel that, you know, and, and in some ways that it's not a bad thing. You just have, you just sort of go, oh, okay, this is the sort of adrenaline kicking in and you just sort of, you know, calm it down and plow forward but this wasn't what that was this was something that was 
much more intense and, and very overwhelming. And so I was like, whoa, this is something I've never felt before. Anything unexpected like that is like you, you have to sort of think this is a signal that something's not quite right. And I totally agree with you about the nervous system. To me, understanding that I knew, thought I knew a lot about health and a lot about science and a lot about the, the mind and body and everything, but it was only when I really looked at you know, how your nervous system works, how the vagus nerve works and how it's so linked into everything that this is only one of the only ways you can recover from burnout is really looking at those practices that are going to help you regulate your nervous system and, and not be in that survival mode the whole time. And, you know, the, the practices that help you are things that, you know, we've all been talking about for years saying we should do this like meditation, and, but when you need to do this mind-body work, it is the only way out of some of these conditions, including things like burnout. You can't just talk your way out of it as much as people like you know me might like to think that that is the solution. <laughs> you can't talk your way out of it. Mm. And the good thing about it is, though, is once you do discover this, it actually kind of puts the evidence and the science behind some of these tools that we've learned over the years. I mean, it, it really does explain how meditation impacts us, why reflective work, journalism. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to some of that at the end. You mentioned that your professor gave you this checklist and you were reading through it and you were like, whoa, I have all of those. What's the time frame between that and you getting up on stage? Had it been playing on in your mind and you've been thinking about it or are these really close together? They were really close together. It was almost like you know, the universe was sort of sending me signals no matter where I looked. It was about the same time and I was like, you know, it had just happened and then I spoke to this professor, rang me about burnout and this was a, a professor that I knew pretty well and but I didn't know he had anything to do with burnout he was just a, a, psycho, a professor of psychiatry and he himself had been through a, a period of burnout and and so he was wanting to sort of talk about it and and so yeah the the two things happened pretty quickly and but this was all pre-pandemic so what happened for me is that I needed to sort of work out how to recover from burnout and then think about how do I not get back into that state because, you know, the intensity of covering something like the pandemic as a medical reporter for, the, you know, the biggest story of your career basically. So I really had to really commit to the practices of, you know, like every day doing meditation and and really putting some good boundaries in place of, you know, as much as, as possible you know, switching off and, and not working, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which I really could have, you know, in because it was so busy. But I knew that if I wanted to sustain my well-being, that just that, that was not conducive to doing that. So I think that's the thing, you know, when you're a, a hard worker and you, you want to do well in a job, and this is why often high performers are actually more susceptible to burnout because they give so much of themselves to the work that they do. And that's why we see burnout in, in industries like doctors and nurses and teachers and lawyers, paramedics, because it's people who are very passionate about the work that they do and they want to work really hard. But you have to be careful that you don't end up, you know, costing your own well-being and your own health in the process. Because, yeah, we can't help anyone when you're not well yourself. Hey, everyone. I've got an amazing opportunity for all of us to meet face-to-face -face live in a room. Let's run a DISC personality profiling workshop 
for your team. Doesn't it suck as a leader when you feel like you're saying one thing, but it's not translating to your team? Or when a colleague does a task in a certain way that makes your jaw drop or your eye twitch? What is the one thing that your workplace needs right now to elevate your team's performance? It's a common language of communication. DISC is a simple yet powerful framework that helps us understand how your team responds, relates and behaves to one another. By the end of this workshop, you'll walk away with a step-by-step guide to effective communication and have some fun and some laughs with the team along the way. I'd recommend Ali. She's um, fantastic at what she does, but also brings a high level of passion and commitment to the program. It's just the simplicity of it. It's not overcomplicated. It's straightforward and it's analytical. The overwhelming feedback was that they thoroughly enjoyed it and came out with some really useful tools to be able to engage and to use in their um, work life and their home life. With over 40 years of research and testing, DISC is not just a buzzword. It is a time tested tool that delivers profound results. If you're ready to unlock your team's full potential, drive engagement and elevate performance, or perhaps just even a little bit curious about how this can help you, get in touch with me today via email or LinkedIn. Now back to challenges that change us. And what was the challenge for you? Like once you had experienced that and once you'd seen that checklist, like Did you just get into action mode or what was really hard for you in that moment? Because I can imagine, and I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine that it would have been tough for you to own that space. It was really tough, Ali. It was really tough because, you know, the usual way that I would deal with things would be like, okay, you know, what do I do to fix this? You know, what do I've got to do to, to make it better? And the thing about burnout is you've got to look at taking things off the table, not adding more in. It's not about making a bigger to do list. It's thinking, it's looking at your list and going, what can I actually get rid of? What is, you know, non-urgent? What's, you know, what's things that I can take off the table? And the last thing you need when you're feeling burnt out is to add more and more and more. You know, I, I wasn't really able to do much exercise. So the things that I needed to do were sort of counterintuitive. They were like, you know, doing meditation. They were, you know, doing re- relaxing yoga. I mean, all I could manage when I first recovered from burnout when it came to exercise, was just doing some Tai Chi in the mornings. That was it. I couldn't really do much more than that. But I thought the big change for me was getting out of that all or nothing mentality because for me I was like, well, if I'm not doing exercise and really getting into it, then there's no point. And I really had to to, to question that and say, you know what, that's actually not true. You're better off to just do something that's going to nourish your nervous system, that's going to make you feel good, that you can do every morning rather than thinking, you know, I'm just going to go to the gym for an hour and feel worse afterwards. So getting out of that all or nothing mindset is something that was very helpful for me. And it's something that I really still hang on to. Even today, today, normally I would go to a class in the morning on a, on a Monday, which is, it happens to be today, but I couldn't go to that particular class, exercise class because I had to take one of my sons to the doctor. And so I thought rather than thinking, oh, I just won't go, I thought, you know what, there's a class on later on. It's not the one I normally do. It's a more relaxing one. It's a more nourishing one. I'll do that instead. And it was actually fantastic. And so I think that's the thing. Sometimes you've just got to have more of an open mind and and be open to different possibilities and, and approach things with this approach of curiosity, like saying, you know, what if I tried this? What if I did this? And you just never know trying different things like that can make you feel so much better rather than feeling locked into, you know, acting a certain way. So for me, it was opening up my mindset to a different way of living, I guess. 
It's interesting because I often hear this, having a background in fitness as well as psych, I often hear people talk about when they make a change in their in their fitness journey, it's like I'm doing things that are more nourishing and I'm like, isn't it interesting that that word nourish doesn't come into our world of fitness enough? <laughs> like, I, you know, at our gym we're always saying how do we fill the bucket up as well as taking out of it? Because if you go and do a hard run or go and do a hard hit session or a hard weight session, it might be good for your mental health and it might be good for you and it might set you up for success, but it's also using your energy. It's also adding load to your day. So it's great to do that, but how are you offsetting that? Like do you have exercise in your routine that is more nourishing that is purely about giving back to your body whether that be yoga or release or swimming like just a consistent slow swim where you just let your mind relax you know I think it's a real change we need to see in industry it really is and I think I always say it's good to do certain exercise and and people are you know often drawn to one particular thing but I think the body you know, we need that variety that you talked about. We need, you know, we you can't just keep doing the same. If you just do the same types of exercise over and over, particularly, you know, if it's pretty stressful on your body, you need to put something back. Otherwise, you can end up, you know, it takes a lot out of you. And it's the same whether it's if you have a, a busy family life or you've got a busy work life, even though, you, you know, you might really enjoy, you know, that busy family life and that busy work life, you still need to find time for yourself. The other thing that I, I learned as well was the different types of rest that we need. You know, I used to think rest was just, you know, oh, you go and have a lie down. And to me, that wasn't that appealing. But I learned about the concepts of different types of rest, including things like cognitive rest, where you just stop thinking and stop, you know, having to analyze things and overthinking things. And so, so doing so, so I love reading fiction, for example. So when I'm reading fiction, then I switch off that thinking part of my brain, that that sort of analysing part and just sort of be in the moment of whatever I'm reading. And so, you know, having cognitive rest and having creative rest where you're really going to look at some, you know, going to an art gallery and just appreciating something so artistic and beautiful or something that inspires you to be creative. And so, yeah, if you're thinking about rest, it doesn't have to be going and actually just lying down. That's only one type of rest. So, again, that's about expanding the you know what's possible you know whereas I think we often tend to be quite narrow and focused in in what we what we do and what we the way we think and so the more expansive you can be I think it can it can really help and so that's something that I've learned as well. Yeah and I was also wondering about the kind of conversations that you had after you first realized that you were in burnout because there would have been people close to you there would have been people that you're working with like how you found the words to let them know what was happening for you or did you not speak to other people about it? I definitely spoke to my family and I definitely spoke to my sort of support crew and my work as well. I told them that, you know, I was going to, you know, there were, there were some issues and they were they were very supportive, which was good. But I think it's something often not type A personalities but people who want to succeed I think sometimes it's you do need to seek support if you are feeling burnt out. So I would definitely say do that and I definitely did did do that and have those conversations because it's not something you can manage on your own. It's very challenging to manage if you don't feel like you have that support. So part of the solution is really speaking up and saying, you know, particularly if it's at work, saying, you know, my workload is too much or I'm not getting the support that I need. 
it's really, really important to do that. You know, when I give talks about burnout now in workplaces, I tell people, you know, burnout isn't a personal failing about you. It's a mismatch between, you know, the the workload and the resources that you've been given and the support to deal with that. So it's not the, it's not a personal reflection on yourself because, you know, studies, of the research shows even the most resilient of people can end up feeling burnt out. So it's not a reflection on anyone's character or personality. And I think for a lot of people that's very reassuring to hear that. Well, you, you mentioned it earlier. If you think about it, the most resilient people are often the ones that have overcome adversity and their flight fight responses had to be on and they've had to be on alert for a period of time or a very lengthy period of time. So it makes sense that even some of our most resilient people in this world experience burnout or experience overwhelmed fatigue or have chronic illnesses that come up as a result of having to be on all the time. Exactly. And I think, yeah, like I said, I think if you're having a lot of physical symptoms and to me the the body was a sign that like, okay, something's not right here. I can't just sort of think my way out of this and talk my way out of it. I've got to really listen to what my body's saying and think about how I can treat myself differently and live differently so that I can, you know, keep doing the things that I want to do and, and feel good because particularly um, the when people go through burnout, what, what is often the most difficult for them to cope with, this is what people have told me, is the fact that they feel so disillusioned about the work or, you know, what they're doing. And you know, caregiver burnout is another issue as well. So I get mm. a lot of feedback from people. But um, and that can be, it can be very challenging for people because, you know, particularly if you've been working in an industry that you really care about, that you really enjoy, and then you feel very disillusioned about that industry or about your ability to keep doing that job. And so, for a lot of people, that can be the most challenging thing that they cope with. But, you know, the, the good news is for, for people, if they can look at seeking support, putting some boundaries in place, you know, thinking about the workloads that they do have and whether it's sustainable, because a lot of times, you know, people have these huge workloads in, in some industries and it's simply not sustainable. And, and then they end up burning out and then someone else will just come in and take their place and, you know, I, get, I, I think the thing to think about is whether, you know, I don't, no job is really worth losing your health over because at the end of the day, you're just as bad as it sounds, you'll be replaced. Someone else can do your job, but no one else can replace you for your family and friends. Mm. So wise and so true. Was it easy for you to accept? I'm, I know I keep jumping back, but I guess the reason why I'm jumping back, so is because you're painting a really good picture for us as you're talking to kind of mm. hear that, you know, you were you were passionate about what you were doing. You know, you said one of the signs was that not as interested as you were or not feeling like you could do it as much, but maybe unaware that that was what was happening for you. And you had kids, well, the kids were on the ground then. You said they were about teenagers. So you had four kids, yeah. you'd done all that. Like, you know, I can imagine there are so many people listening to this just resonating with that. I also, on the other hand, can be like when someone mentions the words to you, burnout, you can be like, yes, that is absolutely, that absolutely sounds like me. But then accepting it, that next level of like, I'm actually there. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was that like for you? So I think the thing about accepting what I was going through was that I realized that there was no way I could keep doing what I wanted to do, feeling the way I was feeling without putting some strategies in place to deal with it. And I'll give you an example. Just after I'd been diagnosed and I was feeling really, really crappy, I was offered the opportunity to go 
overseas to go to the United States on a, on a leadership tour, this fantastic opportunity to travel over there and meet amazing people and go to amazing places. And so, of course, I wanted to do it. Of course, I jumped at that opportunity and said, yes, I definitely want to do it. But I also knew that I was going to have to think about, okay, I looked at the schedule, I looked at what we were going to be doing, and I had to think, okay, how can I do this and and sort of get through this in a way that I can cope with, you know, all the travel and all the everything else that was involved. And so I had to really sit back and go, if I'm going to take advantage of all these these opportunities, which I wanted to, I've got to think about how can I say yes and still do it in a way that I can get through. And so it meant, I'll give you an example, Ali. So for me, because I've got low blood pressure and things like that, I have to I have to eat first thing in the morning when I wake up. I have to like have breakfast and I can't just I, I can't just like get up and and go. Like some people can just get up and go out of the house and so on days when I was on this this leadership tour, on days when like we'd have to get up and a, a coach would be coming to pick us up at like 7 a.m. to go and meet, you know, go, to go to a university and meet amazing people, I would have to get up at 6 a.m. And make sure I'd already, you know, had tea and had breakfast and got myself together so that I was ready and, you know, able and to function to be on that bus at seven. Whereas most other people could just get up at quarter to seven, have a coffee and jump on the bus. I knew I just couldn't do that. So I really had to think, how can I actually make this happen? How, what do I need to put in place and just take ownership of it? I guess that's the thing, you know, you can wish things away. You can wish you felt differently. But at the end of the day, we all have to sort of accept that the way we feel is the way we feel. And often pushing things away makes you feel worse. Whereas accepting it and going, you know what, this is just how it is and I'm going to get through it and let's put some strategies in place to deal with it. And I did that and I loved that trip and I had a great time and I really enjoyed it and I'm so glad I was able to do it. But I wouldn't have been able to do it unless I'd put those other, almost like putting guardrails in place just to say, okay, you're going to have this great opportunity. How can you actually make it happen? And just resting a lot when I, you know, could rest, then, you know, also making sure if there was time to sort of go on walks and, you know, go to the gym at the hotel and spend time doing things that were more nourishing as well. You know, I think particularly if you're dealing with whether it's a physical illness or if you've got something like, you know, I I speak to a lot of groups about things like anxiety and often we spend a lot of emotional energy trying to get rid of something, trying to push it away, and that just creates more angst for us. Whereas being able to sit with something and, you know, I I spoke to this fantastic guy when I went on to a health retreat, uh, this sort of spiritual guy where he was talking about being able to sit with uncomfortable feelings. And that doesn't mean you enjoy them. That doesn't mean you want them, but just being able to sit with them. And if you tell yourself that you can sit with uncomfortable feelings, whether that's about feeling anxious, whether that's, you know, uncomfortable feelings about physically not, not feeling as good as you would like, it actually really helps you to manage those sensations because you tell yourself, yep, I can sit with these uncomfortable things, like, you know, and then you realise that you can sit with them and then no feeling is, is permanent so things don't usually last and by the time you've sort of said that I can that you can sit with the uncomfortable feelings a few times, 
then the feelings are usually gone by the time you've said it a few times. And I was thinking as you said that there was a really live example that I experienced last week in this space. I actually went to hospital. I had a friend there and they thought they were having a panic attack. They thought they were like everything was falling apart. They felt extremely overwhelmed. You know, I sat with them and I was listening and and I just mentioned, I said, you know, it, it sounds like I can hear all these physical symptoms, but it sounds like with everything that's going on, you're grieving. They were like, huh. Anyway, a few days later, I spoke to the same girl and she said to me, you know, I feel so much better knowing that I'm okay. I can just sit in my grief. Like I'm not scared of those symptoms anymore. They come and go now. They're coming less. But it actually makes sense. When you said that, it made sense that it was actually grief. And I'm like, yeah, some of our emotions, what exactly what you said, we try and compress them. We try and push them down. We try and ignore them. We try and just forget about them. And, and they can really start to come out in physical responses that we aren't even in our awareness and they can look so similar to something else and they're scary. You know, for mm. anyone out there that has experienced either the dizziness when you stand up, a panic attack, feelings that you're not familiar with, our first response is fear usually. It's like, what is this? This is new. Why is this <laughs> happening? How do I get out of it? Like, <laughs> It's true and I think that sort of realisation that, you know, you can sit with those uncomfortable feelings even though you, they may not be pleasant, but it, it's actually quite an empowering feeling to tell yourself that, to say, you know what, I can sit with this, I can deal with it, I can manage it and I can get through it. And often it can be really useful as well to, if you are going through a difficult period, and I, I talk about this when I do talks as well, is to particularly to encourage people to have a growth mindset, to recognise that most of us have been through difficult things in our lives in the past and we got through challenging periods and thinking about thinking back to what might have helped you then and just thinking back to the fact that you got through it and came out the other side and that means that you'll get through this as well you know even though it might not be the most pleasant of experiences but you will get through it and it's really interesting when I ask this this question in in workshops and and you know when we go into workplaces because Without fail, everyone can think back to at least one thing in their lives, a challenging experience that they've got through. And it really helps them, it reminds them that they have done hard things in the past and they've got through it. You know, people have said, you know, they we, we use this anonymous polling thing, so like one's called Mentimeter. And so it means that you can put your answer in and no one knows who's putting the answer in. I don't even know. And so people will say, you know, like I, you know, I lost my job or I went bankrupt or my wife left me or, and they remember what helped them get through that challenging period. Mm. And they remember that they got through it and that helps them deal with whatever they're dealing with now, which may not be as challenging as what they've dealt with in the past. So I think sometimes we forget, <laughs> we forget that we've been through hard things. We also don't take the lessons from other things in our life. Like when you were describing that, it's no different to when you do your first ever 5K run, right? Like you feel like you could never do that. So out of reach. <laughs> it's a goal you never get. And then you cross the finish line and you're like, oh, wow. And then you go on and keep running in 5K every week and you forget that feeling of how hard it was. But you look back and you think, oh, I can do that now because I've done it once. And that's what, you know, when you're talking about that, when we look back and we reflect on those times in our lives that we found hard and what were the lessons we took away from it and what were the skills that we gained through that and what were the tools and strategies that we used, you know, or the support that we had, it can reassure us that, yeah, it was tough, but we can do this and we'll do it again because life is guaranteed to throw adversity <laughs> at you. I always say to people, uncertainty is the one thing I'm, I can tell you is certain. 
It's the only thing that we know. Like, So being okay with knowing that if you really want to live the full human experience, it comes with all its colours and some of them are really uncomfortable, like you said. We do forget the lessons sometimes and so it, it is just something I think people can hold on to to say, you know what, I did get through something challenging in the past and I'll be able to get through this as well. And, you know, it may not be easy, but I'll deal with it. That can really, really help you. And talking about your experience, Sophie, you, you, you started to give us an idea of what that looked like. How long would you have said when you look back to that time, did you feel like you were in burnout? That's a good question. Look, I think, like I said, it's sort of a slippery slope thing. You don't, it's almost one of those things that you don't really realise how crappy you're feeling until you sort of reach rock bottom for me that's how it manifested anyway so I'd say it was certainly something that built up I'd say not not over weeks and months but I'd say over it was like a more like a period of years rather than weeks and months I think that's the thing with like you know with chronic stress you know short bouts of stress are are fine They, they actually don't cause the same sort of issues that chronic ongoing stress can cause when it comes to your physical and uh, mental health so I think if it's if you've been in a stressful situation for a long time I'm talking like years and years that's when often we start to see you know the physical signs show up for people when they've been in that fight or flight for literally years and years whereas if it's you know only weeks and months the body tends to be able to cope a bit better so I I think it was a little a, a fair while now I look back which is why the recovery can take a while too and if you were to put some time frame around that recovery for you, what what time frame would you put on that? Look, I I would say, I mean, I would say recovery's ongoing. I, I think it's one of those things. It's not like you, I mean, I work for myself now. And so I, you know, as, you know, and I, I sort of talk to entrepreneurs and I know if people who work for themselves, you can, because you're the boss, but you're also the one doing all the work. <laughs> So there's no one saying, oh, you can leave work early and have the day off. And no one says that when you're your own boss. So I've got to be mindful now, even now, not to overdo it because otherwise I, I don't want to end up back in where I was. So I think I think it's once you realise, you know, and I've also spoken to people who've been through several periods of burnout, so not just once, but, you know, it's happened a few times. So I'm really mindful that it's something you need to recommit to in, in terms of your habits and if you want to really create that life that you love, you know, it is about, you know, the habits and thinking about your morning routine. This is the way it works for me anyway, what I do in the mornings and how I'm setting the day up. And, you know, I used to wake up in the morning, jump on, you know, news sites on my phone and and start listening to, you know, news. And, and then, but what happens with that is you're basically someone else is taking over, their agenda is setting your mood for the day. You know, if it's some really negative news story, the research shows that if you scroll through and read negative news in the morning, it can really impact your mood for the rest of the day. And so I don't want to do that. So I really start try to start the day as mindful a way as I can to think about what are the things that I can do that I know are going to make this a great day. And it's things like meditation. It's things like affirmations. The research behind affirmations is really robust. You know, saying to yourself, waking up and saying to yourself, today is going to be a great day, the research shows that if you use those sort of affirmations, it actually can make a massive difference to how you feel and how you interpret that what, what happens around you. So much of how we feel is about our interpretation. 
of the events. It's not the events themselves. Like think about it. Like if you think of two people going on a roller coaster, for one person it's the most horrific experience they could imagine. The other person loves it, can't get enough of it. So the event is the same, but it's the interpretation of the event is totally different for those two people. And there are things that impact how we interpret the world around us and our consumption of things, our diet, as much as what we eat and drink, also what we're consuming on social media and that sort of thing really impacts your mood and your mental health. So I always say to people, think about, you know, if you're on on social media and you come off that experience feeling worse, then think about, is that serving you? Is that really helpful? And are you following the right people? You know, are you following people that are you're comparing yourself to them on social media and thinking, oh, I don't have all the things they have. And instead of recognizing that what they're showing you is just a, a sort of shiny version of their life that's not the real life. But I think for particularly for a lot of young people and older people as well, but young people see that and think that that is real life. And it's just, it's really not. It's only no. just a sli- sliver of what l- someone's life's like. And you were saying before, I was thinking, it's like we still look at the mind and the body as separate. You know, it's like those words are still, there's a space in between them and you work on your mind or you work on your body. But we're one, <laughs> like we're one person and one <laughs> life. And nutrition impacts as, as greatly as the thoughts that go into our head. Like you can't pick and choose as to, you know, just work on your nutrition and that's going to be the only thing that makes a difference. Absolutely start somewhere. Like I'm not saying don't start with one thing because starting with one thing is usually the best step. Start with something small that's achievable right now. But we are one. We can't actually segment it out as clearly as a lot of our industry kind of puts it out there on social media for us. Exactly. And I think sometimes we just want to grab onto one thing and say, oh, well, if we just follow this diet, then everything will be fine. Or if we just do this one thing, then that's going to change everything. But, you know, we're much more complicated and holistic than that and so to really feel your best you need to to look at things from a very holistic point of view and diet and exercise and everything like that's good but if you're super stressed and you're you know not taking time out for yourself and you're snapping at the people around you and and you're not focusing on the quality of your relationships you know there was a really good study that came out of harvard this year which showed that the biggest predictor of your emotional well-being is the quality of your relationships Mm. So really focusing on are you making time to connect with people who you really care about and, you know, making sure that you know what it's like. There are some people that you spend time with where you might not see them all the time, but when you do, you have a great time and you you feel really, you know, you feel like your cup is really full and they, you know, you enjoy, you love their company and just making sure that you're, you know, if you can't see them in person, at least picking up the phone and talking to them on the phone and making time for that connection because, and that's something that people of all ages really, really need that sense of connection where we're understanding so much more about the the negative impacts of loneliness and people feeling disconnected. And, you know, humans, we're, we're tribal creatures. We thrive on being connected to other people. And so making sure that you're prioritising time for connection. It's not the number of friends that you have. It's the quality of the connection that really makes a big difference. So that's something else. That's a key part of recovering from burnout as well as connection with other people. 
I get so excited when you talk about that because that's my jam and I'm like, I love hearing when people say that, you know, and hopefully that lands for our audience because it's so true. So Sophie, we've talked about some strategies that you've implemented like meditation, some of the changing the ways that you're thinking, your automatic thoughts, the nourishing exercise. We've talked about working on self-care. What for you was the most challenging one? Like when you think about the things that you needed to change in your world or the strategies that you needed to learn to implement or the ones that you used to think were, you know, basically a load of shit and then it's like, well, now I need to like put weight to that and what does that look like and how do I change that and what ones for you, like one or two of them was really hard for you to kind of make that shift? Yeah, look, I think that that's a great question and I I really do think meditation is the key. Like I I wrote about meditation in both my books, but yet I didn't do it. I, I wrote about all the research about how good it was and, and you know, detailing all the impacts it has on your mental health and your brain patterns and, you know, blah, 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 but I didn't do it myself. And it was only when I realised that the you know, understanding your nervous system and understanding breathing techniques and was the only way that I could really get my well-being back was to focus on physical things that were going to make a difference and meditation and breathing and was one of those key things and the other thing for me is thinking like I mentioned earlier about getting out of that all or nothing mindset Mm. and recognizing that consistency and doing a small amount of something regularly was going to be better than than doing a big amount of something once a week so five minutes of doing meditations in the morning was better because it it builds neural pathways. Imagine like a forest if you think about, and this is the way the brain works, it's the same as walking a path in the forest. If you do something over and over again, the brain likes efficiency. So it it likes to do things as easily and as efficiently as possible. So it's like it recognises, oh, she's doing that meditation again that she did yesterday. Then it becomes an automatic behaviour. And so understanding that was was important for me because then I was like, right, okay, so doing things regularly is going to be really important to sticking with this and doing it for a short amount of time. And that way it becomes feasible. You know, if, if you can't find five minutes in the morning, then like literally five minutes is all you need. It doesn't have to be half an hour or an hour. And so for me, thinking about the consistency rather than the intensity was a big game changer for recovery. And was that all or nothing mindset, thought pattern familiar to you and were you aware of it or was that something that came up through your recovery? I think I'd always been aware that I had that tendency, but I didn't realise how limiting that mindset was. The all or nothing mindset is really, it really limits you. Because like that, the example I just gave about meditation or exercise or thinking, you know, oh, well, I can't have a perfect diet, so I'll just eat whatever I want if, it, if that's something that, you know, you have the all or nothing mentality. Some people are like, oh, I'll try to eat well all, all week and then they but Friday comes around and then they'll think oh, I'll have a few drinks and then they eat food that they don't want to eat and then they think oh, I'll just have whatever I want on the weekend. And so rather than thinking, you know what, you know, having more of an, an 80 20 view on things and thinking, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to eat perfectly. So for me, yes, it was understanding that the all or nothing mindset is very limiting. It limits your options, it limits your chances of feeling great. And so once you can get out of that all or nothing mindset, 
it is really a pathway to well-being, to feeling so much better. And I also just want to reiterate when we heard you say around that meditation, because I think I've experienced this and I see it so often where we intellectually know it, right? Nutrition's the best. We intellectually know that we need to eat salad and veg and fruit and yet we don't actually do it. And often people are like, well, why not? You know, why can't I do it? And what I heard you say was you actually took action. You actually just started doing the thing. And then you started doing more of the thing over and over and over until it kind of really settled in your soul as something that was really beneficial for you. And now it almost sounds like you can't do without it because you've seen the benefits. Exactly. It's a bit like experiential learning. It's like if you actually do it and just do it and just keep doing it, it you know, it's a bit like the Nike slogan of just do it. Often you know, lack of knowledge is not the problem. You're exactly right. We know or we know what we should be doing. We know the benefits of all these things, but we, for whatever reason, we just don't do it. But then once you do do it, then you start to see the benefits. And that's why I'm really passionate about wanting to, to share the, this knowledge with other people, because I want other people to understand that, you know, even doing five minutes of something every day will help you feel better, whether it's five minutes of meditation and five minutes of getting out and getting some sun first thing in the morning, you know, five minutes of picking up the phone and connecting with someone that you really enjoy their company and haven't seen for ages, but are thinking about them and just wanted to ring and say hi. All those things will make a massive difference, but often we just, you know, we intellectualize and think, oh, it's it's probably not going to make a huge difference, but it actually does. And then you start to feel better and then you get that momentum and so then you do want to stick with it. So it is good. It is, and it becomes an automatic behavior and you don't have to wait for motivation. Then you just do it as a matter of course. So the other thing for me is thinking about the people that were around, but also like what you're reading, what you're listening to, particularly with podcasts, you know, everyone's, you know, like we're on a podcast now, everyone you know, listening to podcasts where you're going to be feel uplifted afterwards, where you're going to feel motivated, where you're going to feel like inspired, that's a worthwhile use of your time. And so I, I'll do that as well. Like I'll think if I'm feeling like my energy's flagging or my motivation's flagging, I'll think about, you know what, I'm going to just listen to some, either listen to some music that's really uplifting or put on a podcast and and feel so much better afterwards. I'm thinking about your four boys, right? Like we're having this beautiful conversation, woman to woman. I'm like, you have four sons in the house. (laughs) What message do you have for them? So it's something that I talk to them about and I, you know, talk to other people about as well. But with the kids, I always want to just check in with them and see, get them to check in with themselves as well. Often, you know, if, if you're really busy and like, you know, what Brene Brown calls being in the weeds of things, like you're right in the weeds of something. It's really good to step back and take a broader view, take that bigger perspective and and ask yourself, you know, what's working in your life? What's not working? And if you're feeling overwhelmed, think about if you say yes or no to this, will it matter when you're 80? (laughs) Will Will it be something you regret? And really putting things into perspective. And so that's something that I encourage them to do is just to sort of take that longer view of the world rather than being so focused in on what we're doing right now because that can sometimes give you that sense of perspective that we we sometimes, all of us, sort of forget sometimes. Mm. And so if you, people are going to want to know where they can find you, right, like they're going to be like, oh, how do I find out more about this? I know you've got some 
exceptional content on socials. If people are thinking, let, let's go look, where's the best place for them to look for you? Yeah, look, the best is probably the website, which is just sophiescott.com.au. And we've got a, I've got a YouTube channel and I send out a newsletter every two weeks where I talk about all the same sort of things we've talked about today. So really looking at all the evidence to do with mental well-being and the way people can really focus on the habits that are going to really help them feel the best. Awesome. And I love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. And I think this is a beautiful question because we haven't touched on humor today. And I'm sure you'll agree that that is a huge component for well-being, which is why I ask this question at the end of every podcast. Yeah, that is such a great question. So like I I think the thing we we don't realize as adults how much kids laugh compared to adults laugh. And so for me, the things that make me laugh will be, you know, I love comedy shows and so I love watching comedy specials. So my husband and I will sit down and watch. Actually, we've just started re- re-watching Seinfeld and the humour in Seinfeld is it really holds up well. And so, I again, we talked earlier about think about the diet of what you're consuming and comedy and laughing is such a, it's such a physical release. You know, when we smile, we release endorphins. And so, you know, making sure that you're factoring in that sort of content in if you're not, you're not just watching crime shows and things like that. And because watching comedy, laughing and smiling, you will feel so much better afterwards. So for me, it's going back to the classics. And at the moment, it's Seinfeld. So good. And also that you can watch it together because then there's that connection piece as well. It gets both. Exactly. Thank you so much, Sophie, for coming on today. I know there'll be so much value in this episode for everyone that's listening and you know don't be afraid guys to shout out Sophie let her know you know on her socials and stuff let her know what you took away but also in our Facebook group challenges that change us it's a really good place for us to know what you're taking away from these conversations thanks for having me Ali and there you have it an eye-opening conversation with the incredible Sophie Scott I loved her insight on preventing burnout managing her mental health and harnessing the power of neuroscience If you resonated with Sophie's journey or know someone that could benefit from her wisdom, don't keep this to yourself. Share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues because let's face it, we all encounter challenges and Sophie's story might just be the conversation that someone else needs to hear today. I also want to invite you to subscribe to Challenges That Change Us so that you never miss an episode. Plus, come over and join us in our Facebook community. All you need to do is look up challenges that change us on Facebook. We would love to see you there. Your feedback is what fuels our mission to bring you meaningful content. A huge thank you to Sophie for sharing her experience and expertise with us. Remember that you have the power to make a positive impact on your own well-being and the well-being of those around you. Have an awesome week, everyone, and I will see you all next Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.